Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Brian Nowak. I'm the head of U.S. Internet here at Morgan Stanley uh, for your, your afternoon keynote. Um, and we are thrilled to have Dara Kajrazahi with us, the CEO of Uber. Uh, Dara, thank you as uh, thank you for always, I think as always for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here, Brian. Really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about uh, this incredibly important topic for, for Uber and for the entire investment community. Um, before we get started, I, uh, I have to read the uh, obligatory disclosures. Please note that this webcast is for Morgan Stanley clients and appropriate Morgan Stanley employees only. This webcast is not for members of the press. If you are a member of the press, please disconnect and reach out separately. For important disclosures, please see the Morgan Stanley Research Disclosure website at www.morganstanley.com forward slash research disclosures. If you have any questions about any information on that website, please reach out to your Morgan Stanley sales representative. Dara is the CEO of Uber, where he manages the company's fat, one of the company's fastest growing business in 63 countries around the, around the world, leads a global team of more than 20,000 employees addressing rides, eats, and all of the emerging businesses, including Last Mile, and all the exciting areas that Uber is investing into. Dara was previously the CEO of Expedia, which he grew into one of the world's largest online travel companies currently serves on the board of directors of Expedia and Catalyst.org, and he is also a passionate advocate for refugees in the crisis around the world. Dara, um, there's a lot of topics I sort of want to want to talk to you about um, as we kind of like dust through the list of ESG and sustainability, but I wanted to sort of talk about um, just a couple of high-level questions. The first one is, you know, from, from your vantage point, as you sort of sit in your CEO seat, what do you see as the, the biggest non-financial factors that are important to Uber's current and future business? Yeah, uh, happy to take that on, Brian. And, and I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that the job of a CEO has changed, right? I've been at the Uber uh, role for uh, three and a half years. I was at Expedia for 13 years. And in the olden days, it was about managing finances and shareholder returns and what your company strategy was going to be and your company culture, you know, life, life was simple then. Mm -hmm. uh, but now really it has gone from, you know, you've heard the saying from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder holder capitalism. And you really do have to think about all the above the financial returns, et cetera. But you also have to think about how uh, your company is going to fit into the ecosystem in which it operates. So when I started at Uber, you know, our ecosystem, is the cities of the world, and especially the larger cities of the world. And, and when we sat down and we kind of, in a quiet moment, had that quiet conversation uh, with, the, with the team, I asked the simple question. I said, hey, do you think that this, the mayors of the largest cities in the world, are they happy with a bigger Uber? Or are they happy if Uber kind of stays at its present uh, size? And if we're being honest with ourselves, I think the answer would have been they would be happier if Uber wouldn't grow in their city. Uh, yeah. And that's a problem, right? And that's a business problem. It's not just an ESG problem, but, but it's a business problem. And when we looked at, uh, well, what are the issues there? What do we have to resolve? Where do we have to get on side with the mayors of, of the world? Uh, the factors were very clear. Uh, one was sustainability uh, and climate change. Um, one was safety. Is there are questions? Is is Uber safe as a platform, et cetera? There were reports of incidents happening on Ubers. 
Uh, the third was workers' rights. You know, are Uber drivers treated well, et cetera? Uh, and then also diversity was 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 top of mind as well because cities tend to be very diverse places. And so we set out to push forward a strategy where on those four factors, right, on climate, on safety, on workers' rights, uh, and diversity, we got on site. And I think now, you know, fast forward three and a half years uh, forward, I think we're, we're leaders absolutely in sustainability. We are building the world's safest transportation system. We have led on workers' rights and kind of the future of, of work initiative. Uh, we've definitely been leaders on diversity uh, that I'm happy to talk to. And then the only addition to that that I would add is cybersecurity and privacy, right? It is um, so important and fundamental to all companies, not just IT companies. With us, we have real-time data on location with personal details, et cetera. So I think for us, it's even a level above. So privacy mm -hmm. and cybersecurity is another factor that may not be kind of a factor, you know, at the forefront of the cities of the world, but but it's certainly at the forefront of, of what we do. Uh, and I think now, you know, if if we succeed in those factors, uh, then I think that a growing Uber will be seen as a positive factor as it relates to the cities of the world. And we think that's good for the cities, it's good for the world, and it's good for business too. That's a great framework to sort of talk through of those, you know, those four to five key areas, you know, including security in there as well. You know, to your point earlier, you know, you, you're, you're very busy. There's always so many things going on globally um, with Uber. How do you and the management team really focus and ensure that you're giving enough time and resources to those four or five areas? Maybe give us some examples over the last few years just to ensure that you're sort of moving the, the car down the road on those areas. Yeah, um, and thank you for the car metaphor. I appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in you are what you measure, right? And because measurement drives accountability and accountability uh, drives action. Uh, and and I think that sometimes when I've seen some other companies approach us, they don't approach it as a core part of the business, right? They kind of, mm -hmm. it, it becomes a sideline sometimes. There's a different group, et cetera. And our approach is, you know, these are core parts of the business. And just like I'm drive, driving revenue and margins and trips and product and conversion customer experience, all of those are measured. And we have a regular cadence around measurement. We're very transparent internally as to how, how we're doing. We report out and, and we manage. So in all of those areas, we have done the same. It starts with measurement. So for example, as it relates to uh, diversity, you know, we publish an annual diversity report in great detail, I would argue more detail than uh, substantive detail than pretty much any other company out there. But the backup there is, you know, I have quarterly meetings with each and every single one of my directs as it relates to the health of their teams in general, but also diversity. How are they doing in terms of recruiting? How are they doing uh, in terms of promotion rate? How are they doing in terms of retention? And what are the initiatives that they are driving in order to improve these results? Just like I asked the same questions as it relates to the core product. So mm -hmm. I think that in order for this to work, you have to treat it like any other business initiative and put together the tooling, the same kind of tooling, just like we report our, our revenue on a quarterly basis, some of these areas, sustainability, right? They're longer term diversity, they are longer term efforts, et cetera. While we may not get into quarterly cadence externally, we're certainly gonna get into an annual cadence externally. We'll report externally, 
that'll be backed up by tooling and absolute business processes that start with measurement and accountability internally. That's 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 great. That's good. That's good context. Let me let me bring you back to culture a little bit. Um, you know, you you talked about the the three years you've been at the company, and you know, Uber has had a, a well documented journey culturally. I think so. I would be curious to hear about you know when when you first took the role, what were some of the the first areas you wanted to address from a culture perspective, and now just as you go forward. What are you really focused on driving? What what values are you focused on driving from a cultural perspective at Uber? Yeah, absolutely. So I when, when I joined, I think the sometimes you've got to take some of these issues. There's an order of operations, and and one of the issues that I was really focused on, which is in order to drive the right culture, you have to have the right leadership at the company, not just as the management team, but actually at the board level. Right, so for me, it actually started at the board level. We uh, reformed our board. Uh, we brought in Ron Sugar, uh, our chairman. Uh, we now have a very diverse board. Four out of 11 members are, are women, and we're going to keep driving diversity there because we absolutely see the quality of our conversations there getting broader and better. Uh, and once we reformed our governance, our corporate governance is best of breed, kind of one share, one vote, et cetera, because ultimately some of this stuff is top down. You've got to have the right mm -hmm. governance to then have uh, drive the right culture. We brought in um, new managers in really important functions, uh, new CFO, uh, Nelson Che, who you know really well, Tony West, mm -hmm. who came from PepsiCo, uh, uh, Nikki, who came uh, from Expedia for me. So it was a combination of board, management, uh, and then we, we turned to culture and we did revamp our cultural norms uh, you know, one that I would tell you uh, shows up in the halls all the time is is we do the right thing, period. Uh, and and that is not only a statement of intent, but it's also actually a statement of trust from us to our employees, because we don't say much more. The period means we do the right thing, period. And we're telling every single one of our employees that, hey, if we hire you and you're walking our virtual halls today, hopefully there'll be physical halls later, we're trusting you to represent Uber. And that means that your responsibility is not just to Uber, but it's also to the ecosystem and the cities and our uh, and drivers and couriers and businesses who are dependent on, on our ecosystem. Every step that you take, think about not just what the financial results are, but what are the other uh, implications for what you're doing and the decisions uh, that you're making. Uh, and then and then last I will tell you is that the effort also has to show up in the product itself. Uh, so for example, you know, we have community guidelines on our product and our community guidelines, uh, you know, these are these are expectations that you're expected to follow as far as non-discriminatory behavior, et cetera. And these are expectations that we have on our riders and our eaters and our drivers and our merchants, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And if you're not going to, you know, accept these community guidelines, you're not going to be able to be a part of our ecosystem. So it is really a top to bottom uh, revamp, uh, and we certainly like what we see so far. You're back. I lost your point. Now you're back. Here now. Okay, you're back okay. now. You were just saying it's a it's a it's a top to bottom uh, perspective. That that makes sense. 
Um, maybe at the at the bottom layer of that, you know, I think one of the one of the extra challenges, arguably, about driving culture is the fact that you know Uber is a, it's a shared economy company with with millions of of drivers and couriers around the globe representing the company. So maybe give us some examples of sort of how you ensure that even at the very bottom on the ground level, you're still driving that culture of doing the right thing. Period. Well, I think in order to get to the product itself, right, the first things that you've got to get to are, are the cultures that are actually meaningful to the employees. So when we actually went out there and, uh, and started to form our cultural norms, we actually asked our employees, to some extent we crowdsourced it to begin with, and we asked our employees, uh, what are your ideas as it relates to our cultural norms? And we got 1,200 of them actually sending us submissions uh, they voted more than 20,000 times, and we had a bunch of focus groups coming together so that the cultural norms were a reflection not just of what I wanted or the board wanted or management team wanted, but actually um, what, what our employees wanted. That then allows us to take the norms and have them drive actually action that that pushes the envelope and shows up in the in the product as well right so our belief in diversity for example uh then gets translated into the actions that we took in terms of for, for example supporting black owned restaurants uh on the platform so i think if you get the top you get the middle then it shows up in the product and we've certainly seen our commitment to diversity show up in our product in many many ways it's a, it's a good segue because I wanted to ask you another question about diversity just to, to dig a little further because I would argue you, you really are as a company on, on the forefront of anti-racism, making commitments toward improving diversity at the company, in communities, really everywhere around the globe. So this is a very charged political environment. Maybe talk to us about some of the, the challenges or the risks around this topic that you've, that you've sort of encountered and how do you, you and the board sort of address just in making sure that diversity stays at the, the top of the priority list for the company? Well, I think it's, it's frankly, I, I know that there's a whole debate going on as to where should companies get involved, where should they take action, et cetera. Uh, and, and I think as it relates to discrimination or diversity, you know, frankly, I think it's more risky not to get involved in these in these conversations. Um, you know, you can't let uh, discrimination or racism or sexism just persist and not do anything about it. Um, uh, it it's it's absolutely it's not the right thing to do. I think you'll have an employee base who will uh, uh, feel unhappy, um, and, and ultimately, it it's not going to align with kind of this do the right thing uh, cultural norm that that we've had. So. We have absolutely been clear that there is no place for racism in our workforce or our platform. And we wanted not to say nice words, but we want to actually take action to support some of these commitments that we've had. So, for example, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about we, we have $10 million. We put forward $10 million to support Black-owned businesses um, you know, one million, for example, to the Equal Justice Initiative and the Center for Policing e Equity, amongst other initiatives as well. Another area that I'm actually pretty focused on is um, is our talent pipeline. How can we create a pipeline for drivers or couriers who use the system to actually move up in the world, right? And and there are so many drivers or couriers 
who engage in our earning platform to step up. Uh, they may be part-time students. They may be going to college. Uh, they may need to make some extra money for whatever next step that they want to take. And we want to actually create a pipeline internally. So we have a program now uh, where we take drivers and our couriers and they start working in our call centers uh, and they help drivers and couriers or they help or they work in our green light hubs, uh, which are areas where drivers come to to get you know, their IDs checked or, or their, uh, or their uh, cars uh, inspected. What better uh, customer service agent do you want in those centers than someone who has driven uh, or driven food for Uber? So you now have a path, not just to whatever your hopes and dreams are, but we're creating those hopes and dreams with an Uber. And then we're taking the best of our, uh, we're taking the best of our call center agents uh, and we're training them in coding or we're training them to become, uh, to become sales representatives for, for Uber Eats. And one of the commitments that we made is, you know, we're starting small, to essentially double our pipeline of uh, drivers, couriers moving into the company and then moving from uh, customer service jobs to other professional jobs within the company. We wanna double that pipeline by, by 2025. Another area that we're really focused on is pay equity. Um, I think it's a really serious matter. And we have gone through uh, and achieved pay equity for gender and for race uh, so that everyone, anyone who's working in our company, kind of uh, equal role, uh, equal experience, et cetera, is getting paid fairly and, uh, and, and equally. Uh, and we can say that to the company with absolute certainty because we measure it and we make sure, it, and we make sure that we don't veer uh, off path here. And then finally, the, the last point that I'd say is leadership has to be accountable for all this, right? And so we are actually, uh, myself and other leaders in the company, uh, are measured uh, and and actually compensated based on achieving some of the KPIs that we've put forth in terms of sustainability, in terms of safety, and certainly in terms of diversity as well. Uh, so it's it's something that we're not apologetic for. Uh, it's an important part of our business, but it's also a hugely important part of our culture. Yep, it's uh, it's all encompassing across you know, the entire company and uh, the key strategic priorities. Um, I wanted to turn to sort of the, the managing the marketplace, the partner relationships, both with your drivers as well as your your restaurant owners, given everything that goes on. There is there is often this narrative that managing a multi-sided marketplace requires someone in the equation to get squeezed. You know, so, someone is not going to be treated fairly, whether it is the driver, the courier, the restaurant, uh, the restaurant tour, et cetera. Maybe you know, one I would. I'd love to hear your reaction to that. And Uber as a company, how do you think about sort of the North Star of managing the marketplace just to ensure that someone doesn't get, you know, quote unquote squeezed? Yeah, I think I, I think Brian, it's a I think it's a good point in that there's certainly potential for someone to get squeezed, right? Mm -hmm. in, in in these marketplaces. Uh and and I don't want to poo-poo that. It's a, it's a real thing. Um I think there there are a couple of elements that that we are really focused on. One is that we want to be an open platform, right? Which is uh, we want to be open to as many people as possible. If you're looking for transportation or you're you're looking for food or groceries, et cetera, we want to be a platform that, that's open to use for you as long as you agree with our community guidelines. 
And then as it relates to earners, we want to be an open platform for earners. We don't want to, you know, for you to come onto the app and say, oh, sorry, you know, all the jobs are taken up today. That's a very important core tenant uh, for us. Uh, and, and I think it's a core tenant that's, that's going to continue for, for, you know, hopefully forever uh, as, as this company grows. That does mean that sometimes there's going to be um, differences in terms of supply and demand. So, for example, you and I were talking before this conversation. Right now, we actually have more demand than we have uh, earners out there. And so earner earnings opportunities are higher than they've ever been. And that's a great thing. As more earners come onto the platform, the quantum amount that is being earned overall absolutely goes up, but the average earnings could go down. And, and that's something that, that is real. And I think the proposal that we've got in terms of Prop 22, for example, in California, is that while earnings can uh, oscillate based on where you're driving, where you're driving, we are actually for minimum earning standards. Above minimum wage, for example, in California, it's well above minimum wage. Uh, same thing in the UK. The worker designation provides that there's that uh, drivers who are driving on Uber uh, earn above the minimum standard wage in the UK as well. So that you have flexibility, you have an open platform, earnings can go up and can go down, although they do average out over time, but you do have some protections. Um, the last thing that, that I would tell you is, one of the things that I find really cool about our platform is we are run, you know, based on a commission, based on a take, right? And mm -hmm. so essentially when our earner community earns more, we earn more. So our interests there are aligned. We want to, uh, you know, increasing the pool of the dollar spent on transportation or spent on grocery or spent on food increases the pool of earnings opportunities available for all of our earners on a global basis. It's good for Uber, but actually our interests our interest are strategically aligned and I think going forward uh, as the business grows, everyone grows along with it. Yep. And the, the growth of the, the drivers is something I sort of wanted to ask you about and sort of the, the development of your drivers over time. Maybe talk to us about how you ensure that you have appropriate driver development practices in places in place and even you know processes to sort of help drivers become business owners and sort of continue to to grow in the overall economy yeah so we we actually have a great program uh, as it relates to drivers with the University of Phoenix where drivers who contribute to the platform these are the top drivers because you have to understand that the majority of drivers actually drive part-time certainly couriers drive uh, part-time as well but the drivers who are really dedicated dedicated to the platform as a call it full-time endeavor, even though it's flexible, they can work whenever they can, but whenever they want to, but 30, 40 uh, uh, plus hours a week, those drivers essentially get to qualify for University of Phoenix uh, education. Uh, it's on us. Uh, and either they can uh, take the courses or they can give it to a family member, uh, a, a daughter, a son, et cetera. And it's a great program. We had, um, I think, over 40 graduates this year. Uh, they are, you know, you can imagine, these are people who are working and getting education mm -hmm. at the same time. So they are dedicated, they are motivated, uh, and they move on to do great things. Uh, and it's a, it's a really important responsibility for us. Uh, and it's a terrific partnership. And we're already seeing the, the results of that and, and frankly, loving the results of that.
It's, uh, it's great to hear. The other topic on drivers is around autonomous. I know you and I have been talking about uh, autonomous driving for uh, quite a while, multiple years now. Um, but that does pose some, some unique ethical challenges, arguably. So I wanted to ask you about sort of the ethical challenges of autonomous and worker displacement. And I guess the question is, as you sort of think about the next five, 10 years, how do you sort of walk along that fine line of ensuring you're continuing to develop drivers and create value for drivers while also maximizing shareholder value, recognizing the potential savings from autonomous? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, first of all, 10 years from now, there are going to be more drivers on the Uber platform than there are today. Uh, and, and I do know that there's this... Um, the, the drama that sometimes press or investors love to love to kind of dig into as it relates to, you know, robots replacing humans. But the reality that we see consistently, for example, we see in the car manufacturing industry or chip manufacturing is humans and robots actually work together, right? And, and robots start augmenting humans in the most simple, repeatable, less value add tasks. Those tend to be automated. And the complex uh, tasks, the, the uh, infrequent tasks or the un unpredictable kind of tasks are performed by humans because humans can figure it out. And I think the same will be true as it relates to autonomous technology coming onto our platform. Ultimately, uh, autonomous cars will drive the simplest routes, maybe the highway type routes. Um, along routes where you don't have anything unpredictable happening, no, no traffic accidents, you know, no airport pickups could, that could be complicated, uh, for example. So I think that you're going to have autonomous feathering to, uh, to start with into the minority of, of routes out there. That will allow us ultimately to take the price down of the service to the end consumer. If we take the price down to the end consumer, more people will use the platform and more work will come onto the platform, which ultimately is going to increase earnings opportunity for the platform going forward. So we do think that autonomy is going to make Uber much more affordable to a much higher percentage of uh, the population in the U.S., in Europe, et cetera. That will actually solve one of the issues that we have seen when I talk to um, lots of governmental uh, re uh, re relationships in that mass transit is usually available in the center of cities, but there are so many transportation deserts that are forming outside of the city centers where affordable transportation is just not available. So we think that actually bringing down the pricing envelope, expanding the envelope of affordable transportation to all parts of the city, not just the city center where the lucky few get to live, uh, will increase the dollar pie, uh, will increase earnings opportunities, and ultimately are going to be good for quality of life uh, in some of these transportation deserts. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, it should be a, yeah, there's a, a lot of development needed on autonomous. Yeah, it will be a, you know, I think you have the time right, you know, five, 10, 15 years away, it's going to be a while. So the, the hybrid model, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, let's talk about climate and sustainability a bit. Um, Uber's committed to becoming a, a fully electric platform in the U.S. by by 2030. Now that sounds like a long ways away, but it, it's only eight and a half years away. And as you know from your three years, uh, time flies. So, I guess my my questions on this are, you know, how close are you now to that goal? And then just as we sort of go across the next eight years, 
what are sort of the key strategic priorities and milestones that we should pay attention to as you sort of progress toward that goal? Yeah, so I think this is, it's, it's, a, it's gonna be a challenging goal for us to hit. It's an ambitious goal, uh, which is why we had to put it out there. We had to put it out there and then, and then figure out a way. Um, but I would also say, Brian, these changes as it relates to electrification and sustainability tend to take nonlinear paths. So I think that the, uh, let's say the progress that you see over the next two years is going to be orders of magnitude lower than the progress that you're gonna see in the last two years. You know, you will see uh, charts like this going. And, and I think for us, we would not have made um, the commitment had we not had our experience in London, right? We're, we're gonna go all electric in, in London in just a couple of years. Uh, and we've used the experience, one of the advantages that we have at Uber as it relates to many of these ESG areas is that we can test and learn in different parts of the world. Uh, and our partnership, for example, in London has allowed us to put a path forward as it relates to, you know, planting a flag and saying we're going to go fully electric uh, by 2030. So for us, um, the way to get sustainability at scale is to build the economic engine that is going to deliver that sustainability. So, so uh, our economic engine within the Uber ecosystem is Uber Green. Uh, it is it is riders actually looking uh, for green product, and we have now launched Uber Green already into more than 1,500 towns and cities. Uh, and the offer for Uber Green for riders is, hey, either pay a little extra or pay a little more time in order for you, the rider, to be a part of the sustainability uh, uh, revolution. Green allows us to fund at a premium drivers who drive hybrid or increasingly electric cars. So we're able to take economics uh, either from pockets but from riders to deliver them uh, to drivers. And for example, we're directing over 800 million in resources to then help drivers go electric by 2025. That's the most important factor going forward because right now it is more expensive for drivers to uh, to go all electric uh, when you look at the all-in uh, carry cost of the vehicle and the, and the recharge cost of the vehicle. We're also then investing in multimodal. Uh, we have a big investment in and a, a great relationship with Lime, which is the biggest kind of e-scooter and e-bike company out there. So we want multimodal to be a part of the equation. And we have, for example, mass transit and buses available on the Uber app. And hopefully as those electrify, we will be supporting uh, that growth uh, as well. And when you put it all together, I think we're very confident of being able to chart a path where we can actually hit that 2030 goal. The one factor that I'm actually the most worried about is gonna be the charging infrastructure in, in cities. Uh, the, we absolutely have to build a significant charging infrastructure. And I think that whereas we're seeing single as it relates to charging infrastructure in the center of cities, a lot of our drivers don't live in the center. A lot of our drivers don't have a garage to plug in, et cetera. Uh, and a lot of them are gonna want to, are, are gonna want to be recharging during the evening. They don't wanna lose precious earning time during the peak, et cetera. So we really do need to up our dialogue uh, with city planners in terms of their resources so that we can actually share real traffic data because I do think we want to be a part, uh, part of this solution uh, so that the investment in recharge isn't just going into city centers, 
that are more fortunate, but they're also going into other areas of of uh, of cities. Because listen, you know, city centers aren't the only person, uh, the only place that deserves the benefits of of uh, electrification. We all do. Yeah, that that last part on the the constraint to growth being the charging stations is is an interesting point. You know, some of your some of your global rideshare competitors talk about how they are either partnering or even directly investing in building up charging stations to sort of accelerate EV growth. You, know, you talked about sort of talking to cities and sort of working with cities. You know, how do you think about you know allocating Uber capital toward that or really prioritizing that type of investment for the company long term? Well. You know, we think that the charging infrastructure essentially should be platform neutral. So whether it's there for Uber or it's there for one of our competitors or it's there for you if, if you move to an electric car. So I, you know, I hesitate to invest Uber capital because then, you know, that's going to require return and let's say advantage return. This is like sustainability is a team sport. This is not about whether I win or you win or someone else wins. Like all of us have to come in there. Uh, and so from our standpoint, we want to create the demand, right? It goes to exactly what I said at the beginning, rider demand uh, resulting in money that can create the opportunity for driver demand to move to electric cars. If you have more electric cars, that's going to create demand for recharge stations, uh, which we will certainly partner with as far as where to place them. So we're taking a partnership first rather than an investment uh, first act, uh, activity here. Great. Well, Dara, we are uh, we're out of time for today. Uh, incredibly comprehensive across all these really important topics. I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time with us today. Happy to do it. These are really important areas that we are determined to lead on. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for, uh, for zooming in and watching, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Dara.